If you would, turn your Bibles to Psalm 70. It's awesome getting to hear somebody week after week tell their story. It's always a little bit different. Before we get into Psalm 70, I want to mention a few things about the Operation Christmas Child. Uh, this is a big, big deal, big event, big organization, Samaritan's Purse is. And it is, it is simply, okay, it is simply an effort to get Christmas presents to children around the world that otherwise don't get them, okay? That's what it is. And with those Christmas presents comes uh, the good news of Jesus and information like Bibles uh, to help them know Jesus, okay? It, it, is, it is very simple. It is a Christmas present, an opportunity for you to give a Christmas present to people around the world. And Franklin Graham, who leads up Samaritan's Purse and the organization of Samaritan's Purse, uh, has great accountability and, and, and upfront openness uh, and integrity that, that you can trust that your $7 that goes with it and the presents you're giving does get to children. Uh, we have met many people who have received these boxes. We know people who work on the ground in the third world countries for Samaritan's Purse that deliver those boxes. This is a true and legitimate ministry. We've been doing it for years. Our goal this year is 250 boxes, okay? Um, that was our goal last year, and we got to 229 boxes, so we didn't reach our goal. And I was asked, should we lower our goal to 225, and that way we reach our goal? And I said, no, we'll keep our goal at 250, and let's do a little bit better and reach our goal, okay? Um, if everybody in the room today was to give one box, we would be almost there, okay? And in years past, there have been individuals that have done 30 boxes on their own, okay? So we can do this, all right? Uh, if you give Christmas presents to everybody in your family, then just add one more present to that list that, that will cost you $7 and give it here. I was in line yesterday at a fall festival where there were people everywhere, and I heard the family in front of me talking to the family in front of them about Christmas presents, and she was saying that there are a lot of people these days who take out loans for their Christmas shopping. I'd never heard of such. I know there's a lot of people that run up a credit card for Christmas shopping, but I didn't know you take out loans for it, okay? Might I encourage you today to spend a little bit less on everybody else? At least $7 less. And include this on your Christmas shopping, okay? I assure you that this box is worthwhile. We have a stack of boxes here. On your way out, there are boxes there. When you go down the stairs here on your way out in front of the map, there are boxes there. In your bulletin today is a uh, brochure that will tell you everything you need to do to do it well. Um, we do not want the money in the box. We do not want the money in the box, which means you need to be thoughtful about how you're going to turn the box in. Don't set five boxes here with $35 cash on top of it and hope that someday somebody finds it. Let's be mindful of, of that. Um, all of the boxes are due on November the 8th, okay? Because they're trying to get these to the kids by Christmas, okay? All the boxes are due on November the 8th, and our goal is 250. I am confident that we can do it, all right? If you have any questions, let us know. We've got, I believe, three weeks to get those done, all right? All right, Psalm 70. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We're here today to hear the word. 
Sydney's testimony is so encouraging. The opportunity to give a Christmas present to a kid in another part of the world is exciting. We want to do that. And God, we pray that today your word would speak to us. We ask for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been preaching through the Psalms. And today we come to Psalm 70. It's a good one. It's a short one. There's only five verses. And it's very simple. Today's today's psalm is not complicated. There's not a lot in here that you need for me to explain. I love to point this out about the Bible because there are a lot of people who dismiss the Bible because it's so big or it's so long or so complicated or it's hard to understand. And those excuses are rather easy to throw out if you've never made an effort at it. It seems to work for the person who, who hasn't really tried. But there are a lot of places in the Bible that are just really simple, really uh, upfront and clear and easy to understand. And so I would ask you to give some devotion to the Word of God that you might understand it. And I think that you would find quite a bit of it is easy to understand. Psalm 70 today uh, is like that. Psalm 70 has at the heart at it a deep desire. A deep desire from a man for God to help him And then he understands that the help that comes from God causes him to realize that life's about God. I need help. I feel that I need help. God's the only one that can help me. Okay, I'll trust in Him and that will make all well. Psalm 70 tells us that. Read with me Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. One commentator, a Puritan, said that this psalm, Psalm 70, is the memorial of the poor man. Not meaning the poor in wealth, the poor in financial The poor in spirit. This is the memorial of the poor man. Psalm 70 is. I want us to see today two thoughts. One, being desperate for help. Desperate for help. And number two, being dependent on God. Desperate for help and dependent on God. Let's start at verse 1 and we'll walk through these five verses. Make... Haste, oh God. Make haste is not a way that you and I would talk these days. I don't hear too many people say make haste or even use the word hastily, but it's a good word. It's a good thought. It means hurry up. Hurry up. Please hurry up. And here is the psalmist. This is David writing. David is saying to God, oh God, make haste. Oh God, hear me. Oh God, hurry up. Help me. Hurry up, God, to deliver me. Hurry up, God, to to hear me. Think of me. Be mindful of me. Do in my life what I need you to do. Spare me, David is saying. 
I've said that my first thought today is that we're desperate for help. And I want to ask you today, do you ever feel desperate for help? I know that many of us here today are desperate for help right now. David is literally talking about his life and his danger and his, and his fears, which we're going to talk, to here, talk about here in the next verse. But that would connect with so many of our fears that we are desperate, desperate for God and we need help. And we want God to hurry up. Isn't that the way it is anytime you're desperate? The very word desperate brings with us, I need you to do it now. I, I, it, it, in my understanding, it, it, it can't wait. I need you to do something about it now, God. And I think you are familiar with this. You ever noticed how many times you say please in your prayers? Please, God. This seems to be urgent to me. And yet we, we do talk a lot about God's timing not being our timing. Yet we understand a desperation. We meet in here and pray on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. And for years, Josh Powell, as our pastor, would, would meet in here and lead us in prayer. And I never forget that it seemed like every Sunday he would pray, God, we are utterly and totally dependent upon you. We have zero help or hope if it is not God. There's a desperation about humanity that we need God. And in, once we come to understand how badly we need God, we need Him now. Okay? I, I told y'all that a couple weeks ago, that the person who desires God desires Him now. There's no such thing as, I have a desire for God in a little bit. I have a desire for God in a few years. When I get older, when things get easier, when things get better, when I settle down, when I'm done living this way, then I'll have my desire for God. No. We need God and we need God now. And David is there crying out, Oh God, deliver me. Make haste to help me. Now, hurry, please. And I know you feel like you need God to come quickly. Answer this quickly. Do it now. Hurry, hurry. Remember the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11? Lazarus' sisters wanted Jesus to get there. And their prayer was, hurry up, he's dying. Hurry up, he's dying. Get here, Jesus. Jesus didn't get there. They wanted him to hurry up and get there. And a lot of times we feel that way. We feel like that our understanding of the situation is we need God to move so quickly, work so fast, fix it the way we want it to be fixed, that, that, it, that there's an urgency in us. And that urgency is a desperation. We are a desperate people. And verse 1 begins with David's desperate cry. Make haste, O God. Deliver me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. And then verse 2, he, he gives us a little bit more context. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurts. So here's the situation. David, as the king of Israel, has now people who are against him. David in his life has people that oppose him. Israel is the people of God. David is the king of that. There were many nations that opposed the people of Israel. There were nations that wanted to do away with Israel and wanted to kill Israel. And since he was the king, they wanted to do away with him. They sought after him. They tried to kill him. They tried to end his life. They would attack. They would fight. They would do that. 
David would run. David would hide. When David would cry out to God, he would pray things like this. God, there's people that want to kill me. They're against you, so they're against me. And he would say, put them to shame. Confuse them. They are seeking my life. Let them be turned back or brought to dishonor. They delight in my hurt. It certainly is a weird state of humanity, but we know it to be true that sometimes people like to see other people hurt. What a sad conversation to have. And I want to point out here today that if you delight in seeing other people hurt, it's a bad spot for you to be in. It's a bad spot for you to be in. David here is mindful that because of their opposition to God, they now oppose David. They want David to hurt. It is not the desire of God's people ever to want to hurt people. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers. We are to be a people who bring about peace. We are to help situations. We are to help people. We ought to point people to the comfort that can comfort anybody that hurts. David is on the opposite side of this. They are coming at him. And David is asking God to help him in this situation. But he feels like his back is against the wall. And so crying out, hurry God, deliver me, hurry God, help me, do it quickly, O oh Lord. Stop them. Stop them. I want to point out to you today that many times you are aware that your hurts or your problems or your, or your, or your drama, whatever it is, you think is being 100% controlled by them. Just listen to people talk. We're always talking about if they or if that just would go away or if they would stop or they're the problem. We, we talk about that so much. We hear it. And I want you to learn from David's desperate situation here in Psalm 70 that his struggle he takes to God. David is asking God in God's great power and control to quickly fix his situation. And he's asking God to do it in their lives. Now, what we're going to see here in this psalm is that we don't get an answer right here. We don't have God saying, okay, I'll go stop them. We just have David's heart asking for it to stop. Verse 3. He says a little bit more. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! We know what aha is. Aha is like the short version of I told you so. Aha is like the, the short version of I'm right, you're wrong. Your way didn't work out for you. Aha! Joke's on you. Who looks stupid now? 
That's what they say. David points out that there are people that say that to him. When Noah was building the ark, because God told him it was rain, it was going to rain, there were a lot of, yeah, right. Ha. Why, Noah, why are you building that ark? Well, God says it's going to rain. Uh, that much for a boat that big? Yeah, he says it's going to rain a lot. He says it's going to rain so much it covers everything. He says it's going to rain so much that it covers everything and everything's going to die. We need a place to be safe. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard people were saying. Noah has lost his mind. There was a reason for them to ridicule him. It didn't look like what he was doing was right. And so it is in the world. That many times with our sinful hearts, people say to other people things that are to shame them. You get what you deserve. I'm glad that happened to you. He deserves it. She deserves it. It's almost like we like to hear people shamed. If it's going to point out that they're wrong and we're right. You see this. But I want to point out something to you. That David realizes that the people who want to shame him will be shamed. Notice in this psalm that David says, let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. When you say aha to somebody, you're wanting them to be shamed. David is aware that if you're wanting to shame somebody, it is so telling of your heart being out of line with God that it is a shame on you. There is coming a day when we will all stand before God and every single right or wrong will be clear. In the judgment of God in which we stand before them, there will be no explanations on our end. There will be no excuses There will be no explanation for us to try to tell God why we are wrong in the ways that we are wrong. That will not happen. And everybody who has not trusted in the Lord will be put to shame. If you will not trust in God for the forgiveness of of sins, there will be a day when you are ashamed. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. It is a shame that we would have more confidence in ourselves than in God. It is a shame that we would have more comfort in ourselves than in God. It is a shame that we would think we know better than God. It is a shame that we would trust ourselves more than we would trust God. We are utterly and totally dependent upon God. And shame on anybody who has not humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. 
Shame on anybody that will not come to God and say, God, will you forgive me of my sins? The pride that rests in the human being that wants to stay in their sins and hope that that's okay is a big, strong pride. And that will be seen as shameful when God shows them that that was wrong. David is thinking like this when he, put, when he asks God to put them to shame because they're trying to shame him. David is desperate here. Not only is his life in a tough situation, no longer is, uh, not only is he saying, hurry God to deliver me, to, to help me, not only is he saying, hurry God, because there are people who are trying to mess me up, uh, they delight in hurting him, but they also taunt him. They make fun of him. And so it is. There are bumper stickers that you see every day of people mocking Jesus. There's story after story of people wanting to point out that the Bible is not true. There are people all over the place, even here in our city, who laugh at the idea of Jesus, God, church. There are people that mock God. And that's a shame. Do you remember on the cross when Jesus hung there? Do you remember how there were three there that day and there was one on the side of him who was broken over his sins? Do you remember that one that said, we deserve to be here. We are guilty of our crimes. We are guilty of our sins. We deserve here. But this man in the middle of us, Jesus, is innocent. He has not done anything wrong. He should not be here. You remember that guy saying that? There was another guy on the other side. Remember what he was saying? Yeah, you really are the Son of God. It looks like it. <laughs> you dying up here. They're crucifying you to a tree. You're not even strong enough to stop them from doing that. God is a big, strong God. You're up here dying. If you really were God, why don't you get yourself down off of here and save yourself and save us? Taunting him. Certainly out of ignorance, he didn't know any better, right? He was just acting wrongly. He was acting foolishly. What a shame. What a shame to mock somebody that should not be mocked. What a shame to make fun of somebody that should not be being made fun of. What a shame to elevate yourself above God Almighty. while he's dying for you. What a shame to stay in our sins, trying to justify our sinful ways, when God has not asked you to be obedient enough to get to heaven. God has told you he loves you enough that he died for your sins. What a shame to ignore it. What a shame to reject it. And the mocking of, of God and His ways is seen as clear as anywhere in Jesus. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus is the King of kings. And the Bible tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He truly is the King that is above everybody. He's the King of the universe and He models that for us regularly. We see Him looking like the King. Remember when they were blown away that the winds and the waves obey Him? And it wasn't some big event that Jesus called everybody to attention. Watch this miracle I'm about to do. I can make the wind and the waves obey me. Watch. It was nothing. He was sleeping in the boat. He was a little bit wondering why they woke him up. He questioned their faith. Why are y'all scared? You not trust me? He gets up. It's almost like he's sleepy. He tells the winds and the waves to stop. They obey him. And that kind of gives us the picture that he must have went back down and went back to sleep maybe. He is the king of the universe. He does whatever He pleases. He has the power to do anything. And as the King of the universe, He is so good that He wanted to die for you so that you would not deal with God in judgment. The Bible says that whoever would come to Him escapes the judgment. Escapes it. The Bible says that whoever does not want Him will face the judgment. So the king wanted to die for us. Yet, on their way to killing him, they beat him, they mocked him, they spit on him, they pulled his beard out, they they treated him wrongly. And when he was so marred that Isaiah 53 says he didn't look like a human anymore, he didn't have the resemblance of a man anymore, when he was so beat up, you know what they did? They said, yeah, you really are a king, look at you. They put a robe on him. Y'all, if you ever see somebody suffering and bloody, you ought to help them. Anybody. They put a robe on him. He probably couldn't even stand up. They put a robe on him. Then they said, what else does a king need? A robe? Okay, there's a robe. What else? A crown? Okay. They made a crown. A crown out of huge, giant thorns. Pushed it down on his head. Then they made a sign to just keep the mockery going up. They made a sign and they put it above him that said, he says he's the king of the Jews. They were mocking him. They didn't care to bow down to him. They didn't fear him. They didn't respect him. They didn't look up to him. And then after they did that, if that's not enough shame and mockery, a robe. They don't believe he's a king, so they give him a robe to make fun of him. They don't believe he's a king, so they give him a crown to make fun of him. They don't believe he's a king, so they put up a sign saying he says he's the king to make fun of him. And then, just to make it worse, they, 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 they started doing this. Oh hell, you king, oh hell. And it's all a joke. Now don't get me wrong, I know that all people get to joking around and they take jokes too far. Every one of us has seen a joke taken too far before. That's got to be the height of it. On your knees before King Jesus because you don't believe he's a king? On your knees making fun of him and shaming him because your sins don't bother you? on your knees saying, hell, king of the Jews, because you don't need the king to die for your sins. Oh, the shame. 
May we be dependent, desperately, desperately dependent on God. May we be desperate for the help of God for our sins. May you and I be the type of people who say, I'm the worst sinner I know. I need Him to forgive me. I need Him to forgive me. I'm desperate for that. We ought to have come to church this morning thinking, I'm not sure how else everybody else got here. I'm not sure in what state y'all came today. I'm not sure if you sprinted in smiling or if you walked in troubled. But I'm here today because I need God. I need God. And let me tell you, a church that embodies that, a church that is made up of people who are desperate for help, is a beautiful church that knows how to help people. In the very moment you start thinking that you don't really need the help of God, you lose your desperation for God, is the very moment where we're not having any impact. Let's just be honest about that. If you can do your Christian life without a desperation from God, you're the very people that are impacting nobody. If nobody wants to talk to you about God, if none of your family members want to come to know God, if none of your friends want to have what you have, they're not seeing a desperation in you. They're, saying, they're seeing you in control of your lives. Christianity is a desperate place to be. And there are people that disagree with us. And they love to say, aha, how's that working out for you, church? How's that working out for you, Christian man or woman? How's that working out for you, Christian family or Christian parents or church people? David's prayer is, God, hurry up. God, stop them. God, change that. They want to shame me. Charles Spurgeon, writing about this desire of shame, says, Rest assured, the enemies of Christ and His people shall have wages for their work. They shall be paid in their own coin. They loved scoffing and they will be filled with it. Yeah, They shall become a proverb and a byword forever. You must know the truth of God. That even though they shame you, they're wrong. Even though they try to assert that they're right and you look foolish, you are sticking with what God has said. The Bible teaches us about being desperate for help. Now, I want to point out here, because this is the way the world is, that being desperate for help spiritually doesn't always mean that we are desperate for help physically in life. Here's where the church has made a big mistake in the past several years. This is where Christianity struggles. Here's the very tension of struggle for churches in the world, and especially in the USA. We have bought into thinking that if I look good and I'm able to shave my face and I can smile, then I must be okay with God. And if my life's falling apart and my car breaks down, then I must not be okay with God. That's baloney. 
You coming here today looking like you have no desire for help in the world doesn't tell me one bit about your desperation for God. And you're limping in here because life is such a struggle and the hardships continue to pile up doesn't show me that you're closer to God. Doesn't show me that you've wronged God. And I want to point this out. When I say that the first thing we're seeing here in the psalm is being desperate for help, I'm not saying who looks like they're desperate and who doesn't. I'm talking about your hearts. I'm talking about where we are spiritually. The beauty of a church is to realize, hey, some people grew up in families that put them in position to go to college and get a good job, and their lives are going to flow practically, functionally in the world. They know how to make money, save money, pay for a car, and do all of that. Their lives look good. That doesn't mean anything about God. And just on the other hand, there are people who haven't had that. There are people who are climbing uphill battle the whole time. I'm amazed. In the past three weeks, I've talked to high schoolers at Fairdale High School whose parents are dead in the last three weeks. I don't know the last time you've talked to an 18-year-old about how they're going to get out of high school and start a life, y'all. It is extremely, extremely hard. You need to be mindful of it. And just going off on our, on, our, on our views of if you want to get something done with your life, just get a job and work for it and save your money, it ain't that easy these days, y'all. It's not that. If you graduate high school, get you a full-time job making $12 an hour, you can't make it. That's hard. That is extremely hard. And the people that have no family to help them get any further are going to struggle. You need to be mindful of that. You need to care about that. You ought to be bothered by that. So we need to be mindful of when somebody is needing help, we can't necessarily tell. Some of the best looking people here walked in struggling today. Some of the best looking people y'all know aren't here today. They're struggling so bad. Some of our people that you know really well are so caught up in troubles right now, they don't even want to come. And you've probably talked to them recently, not even aware of their need for help. And some of the people that I know, their hearts are in a beautiful spot right now. They're focused on God. Their lives had not come together yet, but their hearts are in a good spot. So when you hear me say desperate for help, don't think I'm just talking about the poor. Don't think I'm just talking about the, those who are suffering. Be mindful of people who need help on the inside. Help on the inside. Then the psalm turns to where hope is. I wouldn't talk about being desperate for help if I didn't know where the hope is. Listen, there's a lot of people who try to talk about the desperation of people and their need for help, and they don't offer any. What a sad conversation. Y'all see it all the time, too. I go to meetings sometimes where we're talking about helping people, and we don't have anything in place to help them. If you've ever read, ran a food pantry before, we'll be on, and we just started a food pantry and it's going really well, and we're glad to. But if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm the pastor that wants us to have a food pantry, providing food to some people is hardly, hardly helping them. And you know what I'm talking about, and you've been there. 
That's real talk. And some people won't even talk about the needs of others because they don't even know how to help them. They've lived long enough to know that the help we often offer, often offer doesn't help. We're just going in circles. But the people that know the truth know that Jesus is our true help. And you might do a lot for somebody and they still are not right with God and they're in trouble and you know it. That's why we've got to point people to real hope. That's why I'm okay to preach on the desperate state of people. We don't deny it or shy away from it or we're even able to admit it of ourselves because we know the answer. And shame on everybody who sees the desperate, desperate need of help but won't point people to the real source. They just made a ruling of a football coach, told him he's no longer allowed to pray with his team. He said, I'll break that rule. Until they fire me, I'll break that rule. What would it be to coach football all these years and not point my players to the real hope? If we stop talking about it, who's going to ever find hope? Be honest. If all we do is give food to people who say they need food, Who's going to ever find hope? And have we ever really helped anybody who's desperate for help if we tell them it's okay to stay the way they are, it's okay to stay in their sins, if they just continue to be far from God? Because we know just saying that we believe in God doesn't really help anything. We need a hope in our hearts that really helps our desperation. And David turns the psalm here. Look at verse 4. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. David knows there are people that seek God. He knows there is a rejoicing life. And he knows there is a gladness to be found. Some of y'all are hurting today thinking, I have not been glad for two consecutive days in a long time. Let me tell you here today that the gladness is found in God. And it's not found in anything else. Notice I said two consecutive days. Because every once in a while you have a good day, somebody gives you a gift, you, you know, the cop lets you go instead of giving you a ticket, you get a bonus at work, the kids tell you something nice, and gladness comes for just a little bit. The gladness that comes in the heart doesn't leave, it stays. David knows this. And then he makes this statement, May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. What a statement. I love the second half of verse 4. David says that there are people that love the salvation of God. There are people that love that. Let me tell you what the salvation of God is. The salvation of God is that God saves people. People that get saved are people who are desperate knowing they're dying. If you're drowning in a river, you need somebody to come and save you. If you're stuck in a house fire, you need somebody to come and save you. If you're trapped in a crushed car from a wreck and they need the jaws of life to cut you out of that, you're desperate for somebody to come and save you. If you've been told that you've got cancer and you've only got months to live, you're desperate for something to happen. Those are the type of people that need to be saved physically before they die. Well, that idea, that language of saving is talking about people who know that they have a desperate need to, for God to do something for them to get right with God, the desire to get right with God. And then we know, how do we get that? 
The Bible teaches us of God being big and awesome and holy and right and true and good. And then our lives show us through experience that we're not like that. I mean, even my best days are still uh, in light of my bad days. And even when I'm nice to vow, there are some days when I'm wrong to vow. And even when I'm a good dad, there's days where I've been a bad dad. And even when I'm humble, there's so many days when I'm prideful. I'm, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And and any amount of time given to try to put those two together creates there's a big problem here. God is nothing but good all the time, and I'm kind of more like up and down. And God says that's a big problem. Big problem. God God says I'm guilty before Him. But He doesn't want me to stay shamed and guilty. He loves us. And He sent Jesus His Son to die for us. And the Bible says that while Jesus was hanging on the cross like this, nailed to a cross, God took your sins and, and put them on Jesus. I mean, it was a spiritual thing, so he didn't like put physical sins on Jesus. You couldn't see them. But spiritually speaking, he put the weight of the world, the sinfulness of the world, on Jesus, on the cross. And that killed him. Jesus didn't die from nails. Jesus died because God turned his back on his son and crushed him. We just studied that passage in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God wanted to crush Jesus when he saw your sins on Jesus. They took him down. They buried him. They shut the hole up so that he could never get out. Three days later, he was back. And he went around and showed himself to a lot of people. He did that to show that not the devil, not even death, and not even your sins are horrible enough to stop his plan for what he's doing. And he says, if you'll believe that he did that for you, God will wipe away all your sins. If you will believe that Jesus did that for you under the plan of God, that the godly died for the ungodly, did that for you, that God would wash away your sins. And if you believe that and ask God to forgive you of your sins, the Bible says you're saved. The Bible says, God says, that if you believe that your sinfulness needs a desperate salvation, God provides it in Christ. And if you believe that and run to God and say, God, forgive me, the Bible says you'll have salvation. You can have salvation. This is what David has in mind. He says... May those who love your salvation. He has in mind people that believe that. He has in mind people that love that. I want to ask you here today if you love that God is a holy God. Do you love the idea that God is a holy God and greater than sinners? Do you love the idea that you have a maker that you owe yourself to? Do you love the idea that God is so big and, in, and seriously just like that He could crush you? Do you love the idea that your heart would stop right now if He wanted it to? Do you love how big God is and how seriously no control you have before Him? Are you okay with the truth that the Bible says you've sinned against Him? Not okay with it because it's such a good thing but okay with it because those are truths that lead you to the good thing. 
Are you okay with the idea that God sent Jesus to be the answer for your problems? Do you believe all that? Because David says there are people that love that story. David says there's people that love the salvation of God. He says, let the people that love your salvation say evermore, keep saying it, don't stop saying it, God is great. Wow! I've got a free pass to heaven. The free gift of eternal life is right here on this guy. There's not one thing that you all can do to keep me out of heaven because the Bible says Jesus has done it for me. And I believe that. And I'm holding on to that. that. And as long as that is true, and it stood the test of time, so it's going to stand the test of time, as long as that is true, I'm safe. And God is great. David has this in mind, and he has this in mind in light of his desperate situation. Hurry, God, hurry, help me, deliver me, save me, stop them. They're making fun of me. They're shaming me. Then he talks about seeking, rejoicing, being glad. And then in verse 5 he ends it, he says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. David is perfectly fine with admitting as the king of Israel that he is a needy person. Do you ever admit how needy you are? It's it's our tendency to make fun of needy people. Having a two-year-old at home, it's unbelievable how needy a two-year-old is. Dad, I'm hungry. All right, get you something. Well, can you get it for me? All right, here you go. Well, can you open it for me? And so on and so on and so on. They're so needy. And David is okay to admit that he's poor and needy. Notice, David was the king. David had plenty of resources and plenty of money, yet he calls himself poor. David could basically do whatever he wanted. But he called himself poor and he called himself needy. Why? Because in his heart and in his soul was a desperate desire for God to come and help him. And in understanding his desperate need for help from God, he turned it toward God's salvation of love and forgiveness through Jesus. And he believed. And therefore God saved him. And he was able to say, God is great. Charles Spurgeon says, the doxology, God is great, is infinitely more manly and more honoring than the dog's bark of, aha, aha. Let me read that again. The doxology here of God is great is infinitely more manly and more honoring than the dog's bark of, aha, Aha. I want to ask you here today, have you been desperate for God? Not to pay the bills. Desperate in your heart. For life to make sense. For things to click. For you to be happy. For you to have peace. Have you been desperate? And would you today believe that that is there for all who would seek it and find it in God's Salvation. Shame on everyone who goes against God 
And shame on everyone who will not believe that God sent His Son to die for you. May you trust that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we love short psalms like Psalm 70 that come to us so clearly. Father, we pray that today you would make us honest enough to admit our desperation. God, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would make us a church that looks so desperate. Not desperate for worldly needs, that's embarrassing. But desperate for you. And in our desperate desires, God, we have found what our souls have longed for in your salvation, in your grace, in your forgiveness. God, we ask for you to work in us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.